You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Amanda, and you're listening to the Art of History podcast. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I took a little impromptu two-month break from recording over the holidays as I did get COVID in November, lost my voice for a while, and then I just kind of couldn't be bothered to do much of anything during the darkest part of December. But I am back, I'm brimming with ideas, and I'm ready to play around more with the format of this podcast and figure out an upload schedule that I can make work for us. Our story this week is part history and part social commentary. This is actually one of the first topics that I wanted to cover when I started this podcast, but for reasons that I think you'll soon understand, I wanted to work my way up to it. Today we are looking at the life and afterlife of Queen Charlotte, wife to King George III, and the subject of renewed contemporary interest over the past few years. Oprah Winfrey's March 2021 interview with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry made headlines and propelled your humble host into the content creation sphere. Of particular interest at the time were Meghan's allegations of racism, both subtle and blatant, within the British royal family. As the world discussed a biracial woman's experience in the royal family, it also directed renewed attention to Queen Charlotte's ancestry, and suddenly this claim that she was the first mixed-race member of the British royal family, although not new, was everywhere. This theory was also fueled by the Netflix Regency drama Bridgerton, which depicted a black Queen Charlotte played by Golda Rochevel. The claim that Charlotte had black ancestry originated with one historian, Mario de Valdez y Cocom. He describes himself as an independent historian who sees himself as, quote, of the African diaspora. He argued in 1997 that Charlotte's features, as seen in royal portraits, were, quote, conspicuously African. After his claims gained traction in 2021, Valdez revisited and doubled down on his assertions. We are going to dive deep into Valdez's claims, but first I think we should meet our subject. If you're new to the show, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. This week, we are looking through the lens of Sir Alan Ramsay's 1762 portrait of Queen Charlotte. There are several different versions of this painting, so I will post the specific one that I'm looking at over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. It doesn't really matter which version you look at, so you can also Google Sir Alan Ramsay, Queen Charlotte, and you'll get the picture, no pun intended. I'm going to guide us through a look at that portrait together later in the episode, but if you feel like sifting through the many and varied depictions of Charlotte before we get there, it might not be a bad idea. 
Going forward, I also plan to post supplemental pictures on the Instagram for each episode, so there are some of those for Queen Charlotte as well. So, known to us now as Queen Charlotte, Sophie Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz was born in a small German duchy on May 19th, 1744. She was, by birth, a member of the royal family of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, which sat in a northern province of the Holy Roman Empire. She was born and brought up in the lower palace in the town of Miro, which you can still visit today. A quick note on how the noble families of Germany worked, and yes, this is important or I wouldn't be inserting an aside on it. The idea of a united single entity called Germany is a really modern concept. It wouldn't be unified into anything that we would now recognize until 1871. But prior to that, for most of the time that Central Europe has been inhabited by Germanic-speaking people, that land was divided into hundreds of small states, duchies, principalities, free cities, and church states. By the time of Charlotte's birth, the Habsburg dynasty's possession of the crown of the Holy Roman Empire provided the only semblance of unity in that area. But within that empire, local German princes grappled for power as they had for centuries. Prussia and Austria were two dominant powers, but smaller states like Charlotte's families sought to retain their identities and independence as much as possible. Charlotte was the youngest daughter of Duke Charles or Karl Louis Frederick of Mecklenburg, Prince of Moreau, and his wife, Princess Elizabeth Albertine of Saxe-Hildburghausen. <laughs> Duke Charles and Princess Elizabeth had ten children, six of whom survived infancy. Her father, as a younger son of the reigning Duke of Mecklenburg, was never the Duke of Mecklenburg himself, but was rather a Duke. It was his half-brother who eventually succeeded their father as the Duke and got all the responsibility that came along with it. As will again come up later, Charlotte was born a minor German princess, the daughter of a minor German prince, but she would have ranked a step higher if her father was the Duke. I hope that makes sense. According to diplomatic reports at the time of her eventual engagement, Charlotte received, quote, a very mediocre education in Miro. Her upbringing was roughly equivalent to that of a daughter of an English country gentleman, so she would have learned household management, reading and writing, languages, and religion. She also received some rudimentary instruction in botany and natural history. Both Charlotte's father and her uncle, the Duke, died in 1752 when she was eight years old. Her uncle was succeeded as the Duke of Mecklenburg-Strelitz by her brother, Adolphus Frederick IV, and it was only after his succession that Charlotte gained any real experience of princely duties and of court life. Fast forward a few years to 1760, when Charlotte is a young princess of 16 in Germany. Over in England, her distant cousin, George, has just inherited the British throne upon the death of his grandfather, George II. George III was 22 years old and unmarried. He was the third Hanoverian king. These were the kings who were brought over from Germany to rule after Queen Anne had died without any heirs. George III was the first Hanoverian to be born in Great Britain and to use English as his native language. If you are looking to learn more about King George III, this is not really going to be the place to do it. Two facts stick out for most people when they think of George III. He was the king who, quote, lost the American colonies, and he was known as the Mad King. 
And while those by far aren't the only things of note about King George, they do give you kind of a good baseline. They tell you roughly the time period we're dealing with and lend a succinct yet tragic picture to the end of his life. But before King George's madness set in through the last few decades of his life, he was always ready to defend England's national interests. The royal family's official website describes him as, quote, the most attractive of the Hanoverian monarchs. He was apparently extremely conscientious, reading all the government papers that were sent to him, and sometimes annoying his ministers by taking such a prominent interest in government and policy. He founded and paid the initial costs of the Royal Academy of Arts, and was the first British king to study science as part of his education. As we'll see a bit later, George also had a keen interest in agriculture, particularly on his royal estates, and was known as Farmer George. In the earliest years of his reign, eager to ensure the line of succession, George's advisors and also his mother included Princess Charlotte on a shortlist of eligible and suitable Protestant ladies who could become the king's bride. George assumed, correctly as it would turn out, that Charlotte, as a minor German princess, would have no interest in politics. In his mind, and in the minds of his council, this made her an ideal consort. Unlike, quote, grander royal brides, being isolated, she could never involve England in affairs of the continent. The king, therefore, announced his intention to wed Charlotte, sight unseen, to his council in July 1761. After this, a party of escorts departed for Germany to bring her to England. Charlotte's mother, Elizabeth, died on August the 9th, and the English party arrived in Germany on August 14th. They were received by Charlotte's brother, and the marriage contract was signed. Three days of celebrations followed, so I guess we weren't really mourning for the death of Elizabeth. And on August 17th, Charlotte departed for Great Britain. The sea voyage was difficult with three storms, but she and her attendants arrived in London on September 8th. After stepping from her carriage to meet the waiting King George, Charlotte reportedly stumbled, shaking with nerves from her carriage towards him, but as she went to throw herself at George's feet in supplication, he reportedly caught her and raised her up. Having only seen her in portraits, the king was apparently, quote, shocked by Charlotte's appearance. As to why he would have been shocked? Well, accounts of Charlotte's appearance range from merely plain, the English in general found her disagreeably small and thin, to famously ugly. Horace Walpole, a Whig politician, gives us the most generous description of the new queen. He wrote upon her arrival in England that she was, quote, of a middling stature and rather small, but her shape fine, her carriage graceful, her hands and neck exceedingly well turned, her hair auburn, her face round and fair, the eyes of a light blue and beaming with sweetness, the nose a little flat and turned up at the point, the mouth rather large with rosy lips and very fine teeth. Later in life, Charlotte's physician, Baron Stockmar, would describe her as, quote, small and crooked with a true mulatto face. Sir Walter Scott took it a step further, writing that she was, quote, ill-colored and called her family a bunch of ill-colored orangutans. The consensus seemed to be that Charlotte had a dark, sallow complexion, flared nostrils, and a, quote, spreading mouth. 
A prime minister once wrote of her, her nose is too wide and her lips too thick. In the opening of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, set before and during the French Revolution, she is summarily dismissed in the second paragraph. There was a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. But none of this was enough to derail this arranged marriage train. After dining with the royal family, Charlotte barely had time to rest before she changed into her wedding gown, a dress she would wear again two weeks later for her coronation. At nine o'clock that same evening, within six hours of arriving, the wedding of Princess Charlotte and King George III took place at the Chapel Royal in St. James Palace. If indeed George was visibly disappointed at his first meeting with Charlotte, it did not affect their relationship. Charlotte and George quickly formed a powerful and affectionate bond, and settled into a domestic routine. Charlotte would spend hours studying English every single day, with George encouraging her. In the evenings, they would entertain their new courtiers by hosting intimate musical concerts. Their official coronation took place on September 22, 1761. The king and queen arrived and entered Westminster Abbey after 1.30 p.m., but the procession and ceremony were so long that the king was not actually crowned until 3.30. During the coronation, the king felt it not appropriate to take communion wearing his crown, and so he laid it aside. At that point, apparently, a jewel fell off of the crown. This was perceived as a bad omen, though in his defense, it might be hindsight, and George had not actually been advised on the removal of his crown. After the conclusion of his crowning ceremony, Queen Charlotte was then crowned in a shorter and simpler one. So we've gone from unknown minor German princess to queen consort of Great Britain in a matter of three months. And it was exactly Charlotte's position as a 17-year-old minor German princess who spoke no English that made that elevation possible. A diplomat informed the French foreign minister at this time that all assumptions about Charlotte's role as queen consort were to be correct. Quote, Having been brought up without pomp and in the simplicity of a small court, she has no knowledge of politics and no idea of intrigues or of the interests of princes. It quickly became clear to all concerned that Charlotte indeed had no experience or interest in power politics or party intrigues. Just to be safe, though, George instructed her shortly after their wedding, quote, not to meddle, and she was happy to oblige. The new king and queen outwardly agreed on all things, and both of them understood a desire to lead a plain Christian life. This, coupled with what some have deemed Charlotte's, quote, naturally submissive nature, set them up for success that would soon manifest itself in their first child. Charlotte's marriage to George would ultimately last 57 years and produce 15 children, 13 of whom survived to adulthood. That is an amazing ratio for this time. Their sons included two future British monarchs, George IV and William IV, as well as Prince Edward, Duke of Kent, the future father of Queen Victoria. There were also seven other sons and six daughters. The Queen gave birth to her first son, George Augustus Frederick, the Prince of Wales, less than a year after her marriage, on August 12, 1762. By 1766, Charlotte would become a mother to two more sons, get pregnant with a daughter, and become widely accepted by the English. She even spoke heavily accented English. 
she was also beloved by her ladies and her friends. Entry to the queen's inner circle was not won easily, but she treated her most trusted ladies-in-waiting as old friends, creating devoted bonds that would last for decades. Charlotte's private circle was always one of domesticity rather than politics. There were no royal scandals over which politicians' wives had the honor of attending the queen. Charlotte's friends described her as, quote, timid at first, but they also said, quote, she talks a lot when she is among people she knows. She is capable of friendship and attachment to those who attach themselves to her. On Thursdays and Sundays, the queen and the king received courtiers at drawing rooms where they showed off their growing family. On one such occasion, Charlotte dressed her infant sons in their robes of state and her little daughter in a Roman toga and had them host the drawing room instead. Though loyal courtiers said that they were charmed, satirists belittled the event and Charlotte would never again repeat such a playful experiment. The royal children did spend hours every day with their parents, whether playing rambunctious games with the king or being quizzed on their daily lessons by the queen, who oversaw their education. Although the king and queen were young, they soon developed a reputation for stuffiness, despite their relatively relaxed attitude towards family life. Protocol was everything to Charlotte and George. Charlotte loved tradition, and she clung to it pretty rigidly, insisting that her female courtiers wear increasingly outdated court dress and that the rules of her drawing rooms be observed at all times. The court dresses that Regency ladies wear in shows like Bridgerton to be presented to the queen, yeah, they were not actually the trendy, empire-waisted, slim silhouette that we all know and love. Hoop skirts were required for court dress well beyond the time that they were fashionable, leading to some very comical fashion plates showing how dressmakers tried, kind of in vain, to marry the new fashionable silhouette with the queen's preferred outmoded shape. I will post one of those over on the Instagram for you to look at. Eventually, Queen Charlotte would submit to the changing tides of fashion, and we actually have portraits of her in a classic Regency-era gown, as well as surviving examples of dresses from this time that she actually wore. Again, those are on the Instagram. St. James's Palace was the official residence of the royal couple, but the king had recently purchased a nearby property, Buckingham House. In 1762, this king and queen moved into this new house, making it Buckingham Palace. Charlotte loved Buckingham Palace. Fourteen of her children were born there, and it became known as the Queen's House. Even if she was a bit stiff and she wasn't a connoisseur of fashion, Charlotte was a patron of the arts. She and her husband both had a special love for German artists and musical composers such as Handel. Charlotte's music master was Johann Christian Bach, the 11th son of the great composer Johann Sebastian Bach. An eight-year-old Mozart even performed for the Queen and was later invited to perform at the celebration of the fourth anniversary of the King's accession in 1764. His Opus III was dedicated to the Queen when it was published in 1765. Just like her husband, Charlotte was known to be an amateur botanist. Her interest, as well as the age of discovery in which she lived, when travelers and explorers such as Captain Cook and Sir Joseph Banks were constantly bringing home new species, saw that England's collections of new varieties of plants were greatly enriched and expanded. 
In this capacity, Charlotte helped to expand Kew Gardens, and the recognizable South African flower, the Bird of Paradise, was named Strelitzia Regine in her honor. Queen Charlotte, and not her eventual grandson-in-law, Prince Albert, is credited to have introduced the German tradition of Christmas trees to England. She displayed the first one in 1800. It was said to be decorated with sweetmeats, almonds and raisins in papers, fruit and toys. At all her residences, Charlotte strove to recreate her loving childhood and oversaw the creation of gardens, cottages, and even menageries, turning her palaces into centers of family life as well as ceremony. Kew Palace, which you can visit today, sits in the middle of Kew Gardens and was bought by George III in 1781 as a family home. Then known as the Dutch House, Kew would become Charlotte and George's family palace, called a palace because it was the residence of a monarch, not necessarily because it was particularly grand. I have been there myself, and it is beautiful, but even by modern standards, for a family of 15 plus servants, it is snug. Charlotte did have more questionable habits than just music and botany, however. For example, many viewers of Bridgerton were struck by a scene in which Charlotte snorts a powdered substance during a meeting. This was snuff, a finely ground smokeless tobacco that was inhaled through the nostrils. The queen herself was so fond of snuff that she earned the nickname Snuffy Charlotte. She also had an entire room at Windsor Castle dedicated to her snuff collections. By the 1700s, snuff was considered a luxury product and a mark of refinement, not as we might think of it today as a taboo, mature substance. In fact, a 2003 study found that the chronic nasal sniffing of dry snuff leads to, quote, functional changes in the nasal passages and perhaps a dependency, but there is, quote, no epidemiological evidence that it would have caused cancer like our modern tobacco products. Another strike against Charlotte in the minds of some was the fact that she maintained a close relationship with Queen Marie Antoinette of France. Though she was 11 years older than Marie Antoinette, they shared many interests such as their love of music and the arts. They never met face to face, but struck up a fond friendship through their letters. Marie confided in Charlotte upon the outbreak of the French Revolution, and Charlotte organized palace apartments to be prepared and ready for the refugee royal family of France if needed. She was greatly distraught when she heard the news that Marie and Louis had been executed in 1793. The French Revolution likely put a great emotional strain on Charlotte, but this was not to be her only tribulation in life. By the late 1780s, after over two decades of being queen, Charlotte had already been facing her biggest challenge yet, her husband's famed illness. This would, in the end, alter not only the queen's relationship with the king, but also her appearance and her personality. I'm going to take a little break, and when I return, we will see what I mean by that, starting with a look at Sir Alan Ramsay's 1762 portrait of Queen Charlotte and a look at all the theorizing that has been made possible because of it. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And we are back. So, the artwork that is central to our story today, which we are finally getting to, was painted around 1762. It shows Charlotte as the newly crowned Queen of England in regal robes. Her left hand gestures to her coronation crown as a reminder of this. She is 17 years old in the portrait, with grayish bluish eyes and wispy powdered hair. She is slight and relatively dark in her coloring. Behind her, yards of the ermine-trimmed fabric that makes up the back of Charlotte's gown drape over a chair. Every border and seam on her gown is trimmed with either that same ermine fur, lace, ruffles, pearls, cloth of gold, or precious gems. She is also wearing a dazzling diamond stomacher that the king had commissioned for her upon their marriage, to the tune of 60,000 pounds, about the equivalent of $15.5 million today if I have done my calculations correctly. Copies of this painting were churned out by Sir Alan Ramsay's workshop and were sent abroad to, quote, confirm the young couple's status. This was an age of empire for Great Britain, so many places around the world have been named after Queen Charlotte. There's Charlottetown on Prince Edward Island, Canada, Queen Charlotte Bay, West Falkland, Queen Charlotte Sound in New Zealand, and in the United States, we have, just to name a few, Charlottesville and Mecklenburg County in Virginia, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Even if the people who met the queen in person found her plain and unassuming, she was still the mother of the British Empire, and portraitists like Ramsay were going to, if not glorify her image, then try to show her in her best light. 
Up until 1788, Portraits of Charlotte often depicted her in maternal poses with her children, and she looks young and contented. Sir Thomas Lawrence's portrait of her in 1789, also on the Instagram post, marks a transition, after which Charlotte looks much older and wearier. The assistant keeper of her wardrobe at this time wrote that the queen was, quote, much changed, her hair quite gray. It's actually pure white in many of her later pictures. Historians point to the 1788 illness of King George III as the thing that caused such a shift in both Charlotte's private life and her public persona. That illness, long believed to have been porphyria, a genetic condition that causes aches and pains as well as blue urine, is today thought more likely to have been a psychiatric illness such as bipolar disorder. The blue urine today has been chalked up to a medicine that George was given, which contained gentian. This plant, with its deep blue flowers, is still used today as a restorative, but it may turn the urine blue. Queen Charlotte was kept unaware when King George suffered his first, albeit temporary, bout of illness in 1765. However, the Regency Bill drawn up that year stated that if the king should become permanently unable to rule, Charlotte would become his regent, the person who would step in and make the decisions. By 1788, the situation was much, much worse. The king's manic episodes had become uncontrollable. When he was ill, he would often talk, repeating himself until he foamed at the mouth. But at the same time, his vocabulary became much more complex creative and colorful. Sometimes he suffered from seizures and his servants had to put him on the ground and sit on top of him to keep him safe. Sleepless and often violent, George made lascivious lurid accusations of adultery against Charlotte and lewd comments about her ladies. These attendants could only watch as their queen stopped eating and slept only a few hours a night. She ripped out her hair, which began to turn gray prematurely. She paced back and forth for hours on end, desperately wondering what might become of her. For the first time in her marriage, Charlotte locked her bedroom door against her husband and kept her youngest children in her room at night, afraid for their safety after the king physically assaulted his adult son, the Prince of Wales. There was at this time a conflict between the queen and the Prince of Wales about a possible regency. With her son now an adult, Charlotte was dragged into parliamentary arguments over who could rule as George's regent during his illness. Her resistance to the appointment of the debauched Prince of Wales led to an estrangement between mother and son that would last for years. Where before she had been an apolitical queen, she suddenly found herself the target of satirical illustrations containing accusations that, quote, the queen is really king. In the Regency Bill of 1788, the Prince of Wales was indeed declared regent. This is where we get the phrase, the Regency era. If the king should become permanently insane, he would make the decisions. But the Regency Bill also placed the king himself, their minor children, and the court under the queen's custody. Lucky her. The king had been Charlotte's closest friend, and without him, her nerves now frayed to a breaking point. She became ill-tempered, sank into a depression, and gained weight. 
no longer enjoyed appearing in public, and her relationships with her now-grown children, particularly her daughters, became increasingly strained. With court physicians apparently powerless to help the king, Charlotte called in the doctor Francis Willis, who had been credited with curing the madness of a courtier. This was a decision that would perhaps ease her husband's suffering, but it did wedge a further distance between them. Dr. Willis had formerly run a successful asylum in Lincolnshire. Because of his interventions with the king, there was actually a slow but marked improvement in his illness and his behavior. Willis prescribed the king a bland diet, consumed only with a spoon or eaten by using his hands to prevent him harming himself with a knife. The Royal Collection Trust actually has one of George's undershirts from this time, on which you can see dribbles of food that didn't quite make it into his mouth during one of his episodes. Dr. Willis also advised restraint in a straitjacket and blistering of the king's skin, but there was also apparently more kindness and consideration for the patient than was the norm. The king experienced a recovery in 1789, which improved the doctor's reputation and expanded his practice. Although George did experience this short-lived recovery, his illness left a permanent mark on his marriage. Once dutiful and loving, Charlotte now suffered from chronic depression and had developed a furious temper, often again directed at her daughters. Charlotte Curzon, author of Queens of Georgian Britain, writes that, quote, the wide-eyed bride of years earlier was gone, worn down by decades of trauma. Charlotte had grown hard, forcing all but one of her six daughters to remain at home to act as her unwilling companions and coming to rely on only a very few close confidants. She was left distraught by visits to George, who railed at her for having appointed the unyielding Dr. Willis, spitting that he loved her dogs more than he had ever loved her. Sadly, George suffered permanent incapacitation from 1811 onwards. It was then that the Prince of Wales became regent, but Charlotte remained her husband's guardian and caretaker until her death in 1818. Charlotte could not bring herself to visit her afflicted husband very often due to his erratic behavior and occasional violent reactions. She did not visit him without another person present after 1811, and it is believed that she did not visit him at all after June 1812. However, she remained supportive of King George as his illness worsened in old age and eventually rendered him blind. Charlotte was also a fond grandmother to Princess Charlotte of Wales, the daughter of the Prince Regent. Princess Charlotte Augusta, heir apparent after her father, married Leopold of Saxe-Gotha in 1816, but she tragically died in childbirth just the following year. This was a heavy blow to Queen Charlotte and the entire nation. The Queen's last public appearance was a year after Princess Charlotte's death, after which she was set on traveling to Windsor to join her husband. For the last decade of his life, the King had been secluded at Windsor, where Charlotte had overseen his care and watched him fade away until he no longer recognized her. When Charlotte herself fell ill, rather than traveling to Windsor, she thought that a few days in the country air of Kew would be more beneficial. Charlotte was likely suffering from dropsy or fluid retention, and her condition deteriorated until she contracted pneumonia. 
Queen Charlotte died on November 17, 1818, at the age of 74 at Kew Palace. Her two eldest sons, George the Prince Regent and Frederick Duke of York, along with the princesses Augusta and Mary, were there with her at the end. Only then did she make her intended trip to Windsor, where she was interred in St. George's Chapel. Almost exactly 200 years later, that is the very chapel where Meghan Markle would wed Prince Harry and become the Duchess of Sussex, kicking off a firestorm of renewed discussion about royal race issues. Charlotte's husband, King George, completely blind and suffering from dementia on top of everything else, was not informed of her death. He died at the age of 81 at Windsor Castle just over a year later in 1819, and he and Charlotte were reunited when he was buried beside her. For many years after her death, Charlotte was both everywhere and nowhere. Countless cities, islands, waterways, and fortifications were named after her, as were Queen Charlotte's and Chelsea Hospital in London, which still exists today, and Queen's College in New Jersey, which we know today as Rutgers University. And yet, I don't get the feeling that many people in the mainstream felt the need to talk about Charlotte or related to her very much. However, there was always an undercurrent to this humdrum legacy, rumblings among communities of color who inhabited one-time colonies of Great Britain, such as Jamaica, Barbados, and the Bahamas. To these people, Charlotte was more than just a mother to the empire, she was seen as one of them. Remember how Sir Alan Ramsay's portrait of the Queen was spread far and wide across the empire? In several British colonies, Charlotte was also admired by people of color who were convinced from her portraits and likeness on coins that she had African ancestry. I will post one of these coins, an example from Barbados, on the Instagram as well. Although in the interest of this discussion, I will also note that there are dozens of other coins out there that show Charlotte with European features. It's likely that one or both of these types of likenesses exaggerated her facial features one way or the other to make her more relatable to whatever local population was using the coins. Historian Mario de Valdez became fascinated by official portraits of Charlotte in which some of her features were visibly African. Valdez grew up in Belize and says he began researching Queen Charlotte's African ancestry in 1967 after he moved to Boston. He recalls hearing firsthand stories suggesting that Charlotte had been a woman of color from his Jamaican nanny. He first went looking for portraits of Charlotte, which showed her African features. He contends that these features were noted by numerous of Charlotte's contemporaries, who did, as we have seen, use racially pejorative terms to describe her. Valdez illustrated his claims with other portraits where her skin tone is notably darker than what is usually seen in 18th century paintings, and suggests that the way Queen Charlotte is depicted in Ramsay's 1762 portrait in particular supports his view that she had African ancestors. For a lot of the rest of this episode, I'm going to quote from Valdez's 1997 article. In there, he said, the African characteristics evident in so many of the Queen's portraits certainly had political significance, since artists of that period were expected to play down, soften, or even obliterate features in a subject's face, especially a woman's, that were not considered to meet the standards of beauty for the times. 
Sir Alan Ramsay was the artist responsible for the majority of the paintings of the Queen, and his representations of her were the most decidedly African of all her portraits. Ramsay's anti-slavery sentiments were well known. He had married the niece of Lord Mansfield, the English judge whose 1772 decision was the first in a series of rulings that finally ended slavery in the British Empire. It should be noted, too, that by the time Sir Ramsay was commissioned to do his first portrait of the Queen, he was already, by marriage, uncle to Dido Elizabeth Bell, the black grandniece of Lord Mansfield. End quote. Dido's life story was recently recounted in the movie Bell, and even more recently in episode three of this podcast. And while we don't know for sure that Lord Mansfield's relationship with his grandniece impacted his judicial decisions, it's likely that having her live under his roof would have made him sympathetic to the abolitionist cause. Throwing Sir Alan Ramsay into the mix, it's certainly not a stretch to think that this was something that they shared and believed in, but there's also not explicit evidence to connect um, the Lindsay's Dido Bell to Sir Alan Ramsay and to his motives. But Valdez goes on, so let's listen to him some more. It would be surprising if the Queen's African features were of no significance to the abolitionist movement. He then points to the abolitionist movement that has been so overlaid onto the portrait of Dido Bell, which again we covered in episode three, as evidence that makes one suspect that Queen Charlotte's coronation picture, copies of which were sent out to all four corners of the empire, signified a specific stance on slavery held at least by that circle of the English intelligentsia to whom Ramsay belonged. I have to stop him right there. That is a lot of double negatives. It would be surprising if the Queen's African features were of no significance, and He's just making a lot of suppositions here that while they are valid viewpoints, valid options on how to view this history, they are by no means, again, explicit. Valdez also points to an ode to Charlotte written for the occasion of her wedding to George, which begins, Descended from the warlike Vandal race, she still preserves that title in her face. Though shown their triumphs o'er Numidia's plain, and Elusian fields their name retain. They but subdued the southern world with arms. She conquers still with her triumphant charms. Oh, born for rule, to whose victorious brow the greatest monarch of the North must bow. The monarch of the North here is King George, and in Valdez's reading, this is an allusion to Charlotte as the Queen of the South which in biblical terms means that she is the Black Queen of Sheba and her husband, King Solomon. Valdez's suggestion that Ramsay, as an anti-slavery campaigner, would not have suppressed any African characteristics, but would have instead stressed them for political reasons, is, again, kind of likely, but also not assured. And by his own logic, is there not also a chance that that supposition contradicts Valdez's other claim that painters were expected to play down, soften, or obliterate features in a subject's face that were not considered to meet the beauty standards of the day. Which one is it? Why is it Alan Ramsey's depiction of the queen, which Valdez himself admits he might have exaggerated, that we are supposed to decide is the one that's the most like her? Alan Ramsey by no means painted the most pictures of Queen Charlotte of anybody else. 
There are dozens of other depictions of her. Some of them, yes, have that, quote, sallow complexion, but others have that kind of uh, strawberries and cream, milky-faced complexion that is the hallmark of British beauty standards of this era. And you don't have to take my word for it. Desmond Shaw Taylor, the surveyor of the current Queen's pictures, said recently, quote, I can't see it, to be honest. We've got a version of the same portrait that Valdez is talking about. I look at it pretty often, and it's never occurred to me that she's got African features of any kind. It sounds like the ancestry is there, and it's not impossible that it was reflected in her features, but I can't see it. People who I talk to about the portrait of Queen Charlotte are of two minds. A lot of people say, yes, those features do kind of look like ones you would find on an African-American, on a Black person, but then there are others who maybe haven't seen a Ramsey portrait of the Queen before, who have seen those other depictions of her, who just cannot wrap their heads around it. Shaw Taylor says that a more instructive source of images of Queen Charlotte might well be the many caricatures of her that are held in the British Museum. Quote, none of them shows her as African, and you would suspect they would if she was visibly of African descent. You would suspect they would have a field day if she was. So by his own admission, it was purely handed down stories and Charlotte's appearance in some 18th century portraiture, which caused Valdez to start what he calls a, quote, systematic genealogical search into Charlotte's ancestry. And again, I don't want to argue that the ancestry is there, but I went to school with a lot of folks who were interested in history, anthropology, and archaeology. And I do invite any of my advisors who might be listening to reach out and correct me if I'm wrong here. But my understanding has always been that you don't go into a research question hoping to find one particular answer. To use an anecdote from somewhat current events, you don't go digging in the Ural Mountains because you've convinced yourself that that's where you're going to find Noah's Ark. No, you go digging because there's a hint that something is out there. Something has piqued your interest, but you also remain open to the possibilities, open to all the possible answers as you continue to compile evidence and read different sources. You don't come to a conclusion and then set out to find answers. You run the risk in that case of only considering evidence that backs your answer up. To set out with your thesis statement already in your head is a recipe for disaster, and I'm afraid that that is what Valdez did here. I have a feeling he filled in the blanks with whatever he could find so that his preconceived ideas were fulfilled, running the risk of ignoring everything else that did not serve that idea in the process. Valdez examined Charlotte's family tree, which led him to claim that she, though of German descent, was directly descended from a black branch of the Portuguese royal family, related to a woman nine generations back named Margarita de Castro e Souza. De Souza was a 15th century Portuguese noblewoman who herself claimed to have been a descendant of King Afonso III of Portugal and his goddaughter Madragana. Right away here, again, as somebody who has read a lot of history, I see a potential problem in trusting, for lack of a better word, the word of one individual from back in the 15th century on her own genealogy. 
The equivalent would be somebody hopping on Ancestry.com today and making a family tree with whatever evidence they can find. It might mean a lot to that person, but it's not academically the soundest it could be. Valdez claims that Madragana, the woman who D'Souza traced her ancestry back to, was a Moor and therefore was a Black woman. The people known as the North African Moors conquered and ruled the area of Spain and Portugal from 711 to 1492. Madragana was born in 1230 in Moorish-ruled territory. Her father was a judge of Islamic law. King Afonso of Portugal regained her city for Portugal in 1249 when she was 19 years old. With his victory, Afonso ordered the Catholic christening of both Madragana and her father as they were Muslims. Her father then reportedly, quote, gifted Madragana to the king. He served as the young woman's godfather and changed her Moorish name to a Portuguese one. Afonso and Madragana went on to have two sons together, one born in 1250 and the other in 1260. Queen Charlotte, if you believe the genealogy compiled by Margarita de Castro y Souza, is distantly descended from the eldest. There is a chart showing the lines of descent from Madragana to Charlotte on the Instagram page. There are no known portraits of Madragana, and I'll talk more about her in a little bit. According to Valdez, it is from Madragana that Queen Charlotte, who lived over 500 years after her ancestor, that she inherited her, quote, African features. He writes, at least 492 lines of descent can be traced from Queen Charlotte through her ancestry from Margarita de Castro y Souza, interestingly enough, in a gene pool that was comparatively minuscule due to royal inbreeding. It was from Martin Afonso de Souza's wife, Martin Alfonso de Souza is the son of Madragana, I believe. Um, Inez de Valadere, that the British queen inherited most of her African Islamic ancestry. Valdez's research has been disputed by many historians who argue that the 10 generations that divide Margarita and Charlotte and the five between Madragana and Margarita render such connections moot. Some also suggest that Valdez has misinterpreted altogether the historical evidence regarding Madragana's ethnicity, which then has implications for Charlotte's heritage as well. Madragana was first called a Moor by a Portuguese royal chronicler of the 16th century, so already we are about 300 years removed. That fact in itself was later disputed in the 18th century by one of her descendants, also from the D'Souza family. She was, according to modern scholars, most likely a Mozarab, a Spanish Christian living under Muslim rule in the Iberian Peninsula. Ania Lumba, a professor of literature at the University of Pennsylvania, who also teaches histories of race and colonialism, argued that if a person were described as a Moor or a, quote, Blackamoor, it did not necessarily mean that they were Black. Quote, the word Blackamoor in Shakespeare's time meant Muslim. It didn't mean Black necessarily. Moors could be white from North Africa. Lisa Hilton, a writer of history books, has a similar argument. Quote, we have no idea of what Madragana looked like. She may have had Berber, Spanish, Arabic, or indeed African features. But she might equally have been blonde with blue eyes, as after the fall of the Roman Empire, tribes from Northern Europe, including East Germany and Scandinavia, 
invaded the Moorish kingdoms. Moreover, the 500 years between Madragana and Charlotte would suggest any African bloodline would have been significantly diluted. Valdez, incidentally, has also argued that Peter Ustinov, Heather Locklear, the Medicis, and the Vanderbilts have African ancestry. Just wanted to drop that in here. Even if Valdez's claim is correct, and Charlotte did have African forebears, that's wonderful. But would that mean we could readily infer that she herself, 500 years later, was Black? From a recent article called, quote, Was This Britain's First Black Queen in The Guardian?, Quote, that surely depends on how we define what it is to be Black. In the U.S., there was for many decades a much derided one-drop rule, whereby any white-looking person with any percentage of Black blood was not regarded as being really white. Although now just a historical oddity, it was controversially invoked recently by the African-American lawyer Alton Maddox Jr., who argued that under the one-drop rule, Barack Obama wouldn't be the first Black president. But without such a rule, how do we determine Charlotte's ethnicity? If she is Black, aren't we all? I want to clarify, I am not saying we are all Black, I am merely quoting. These days, people are asked to choose their own racial identities by ticking the box, so to speak, that they most closely identify with. There is no possible way to know which box Queen Charlotte herself would have ticked. Furthermore, her ancestry is shared by numerous other European royals, including her own husband, George III. Are we prepared to say that George III was a black man? And if not, why are we so eager and ready to assign that label to Charlotte? The question then becomes, if she were indeed African, would Madrigana's tiny contribution to Charlotte's genetic makeup have caused the queen alone among all of Madrigana's descendants after 15 generations to display distinctive African features? Portraits of Charlotte's mother, for example, don't show any of those, quote, conspicuously African features. Princess Elizabeth Albertine of Saxe-Hildburghausen, sorry, I just wanted to say that again, does have some killer eyebrows, which honestly you would think that any portrait artist would have also addressed if they were already softening any, quote, undesirable features. Of course, the implication that Queen Charlotte was Black implies that her granddaughter, Queen Victoria, and her great-great-great-great-granddaughter, Queen Elizabeth II, also have African ancestry. From The Guardian, perhaps instead of just being a boring bunch of semi-inbred white stiffs, our royal family becomes much more interesting. Maybe, and this is just a theory, the Windsors would do well to claim their African heritage. It might be a PR coup, one that would strengthen the bonds of our Queen's beloved Commonwealth. Or would our royal family be threatened if it was shown they had African forebears? Royal historian Hugo Vickers says, I don't think so at all. There would be no shame attached to it at all. The theory does not impress me, but even if it were true, the whole thing would have been so diluted by this stage that it couldn't matter less to our royal family it certainly wouldn't show that they are significantly Black. And I have to agree and extend this thinking a little further. If it doesn't matter that the current royal family is potentially Black, why does it then matter that about six or seven generations Black, one of them as well might have been? That is actually fewer generations separating Queen Elizabeth and Queen Charlotte than what separated Queen Charlotte and Madragana.
1999, after Valdez's research was reported on in the London Sunday Times and the Boston Globe, Buckingham Palace responded officially to this claim. They neither confirmed nor denied Charlotte's possible ancestry, but spokesman David Buck told the Globe, This has been rumored for years and years. It is a matter of history, and frankly, we've got far more important things to talk about. And maybe that's true. But perhaps the most important takeaway from the Queen Charlotte debate is not that the current royal family might be one 256th black, but rather what the very possibility that Charlotte was black may mean for people of color who have long felt erased or omitted from Western history. Yolanda Watt, the wife of Representative Melvin Watt, who for 11 terms represented Charlotte, North Carolina in the U.S. House of Representatives, agrees with that sentiment, saying, quote, hopefully the sketchiness will inspire others to further research and documentation of our rich history. Knowing more about an old dead queen can play a part in reconciliation. Valdez has said that in the current racial climate, the genealogy of Queen Charlotte is very important to history. In reaction to the horrors of what happened in Charlottesville, where white supremacists held a Unite the Right rally that turned violent, and, quote, which is named after this queen, her ancestry is very relevant. And I do tend to agree. While I personally find a lot of flaws in Valdez's methods and in his conclusions, the question itself is still one that I find fascinating to consider and worth asking until there is proof one way or the other. I do hope you found this issue as interesting as I do and that you stuck with me until the very end here. I wanted to get to know Charlotte as a person before we went digging around in her family tree. As I mentioned a few times, the Instagram post this week has several images of her and artifacts from her lifetime for you to peruse. I want to do more of that in the future, so watch out for the accompanying social media posts to this podcast as we get a little bit more interesting. With that in mind, I've also gone ahead and snagged the TikTok handle Art of History Pod for the show. I have no clue really what I'm going to do over there just yet, but why not give it a follow just so you get the additional content as soon as it goes live. As always, I do really encourage having a conversation about this episode in particular, so if you have any questions or comments about this episode or about what you'd like to hear next, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the Instagram, shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com, or you can simply follow on Instagram, again, at artofhistorypodcast. I am on TikTok, like I said, at artofhistorypod, or on Twitter at arthistoricpod. And I continue to make my personal royal history videos on TikTok at Matta of Fact. That's Matta, M-A-T-T-A, underscore of, underscore fact. I am so glad to be back, and I really, really look forward to seeing you in the next one. Bye, everyone. Mm -hmm.